0: Welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ben, Chris, Chad, and Eric to discuss the topic of the importance of BI and analytics to companies. Before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Ben, do you want to kick us off?
1: Sure. Thanks, Amy. Um, well, first, thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Uh, my name is Ben Huntley. I'm the Director of Data Engineering at IDEX Laboratories. Uh, we're an animal diagnostics company serving up data. Um, well, animal diagnostics results in data to uh, customers
2: all over the world.
0: Great. Thanks, Ben. Chris?
2: Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Chris Micah. I'm the uh, Staff Vice President of Business Intelligence at uh, FM Global. And uh, yeah. FM Global is a commercial property insurer. And uh, we have offices uh, and do business all around the world.
3: Great. Thanks, Chris. Chad? Great. Thanks, Amy, for having us. I'm um, looking forward to the conversation. I'm Chad Rose, co-founder uh, and CEO of Inside Out which is a end-to-end data management analytics application
4: uh, within the middle market.
0: Great thanks Chad. and finally Eric.
4: Yeah, uh, Eric Gonzalez, I am the VP of business Intelligence Architecture over at Eastern Bank and I also uh, serve and uh, assist companies and individuals across the data continuum. Um, really looking forward to the conversation with everybody today.
0: Great, thanks for that, guys. So now we've established a context for each of you. Let's move on to the topic in focus. So you've all got questions or statements on the importance of BI analytics to companies. So let's get started. So I'm going to start with Ben. So Ben, I believe your first one was the relationship between BI analytics and engineering. Do you want to do you want to kick us off with that?
1: Sure. Um, there's definitely a relationship between um... These two areas. It's interesting how um, these two fields have have differed over time. I think long ago, used to have uh, one department, sometimes one person that was in charge of doing everything from soup to nuts, from finding the data to normalizing it and then doing the analysis on it and maybe doing some reporting on it for folks that were going to use it uh, in the office. But today, um, that's clearly different, especially in very large organizations. Um, there's this old adage that 80% of data projects is all about the data wrangling. Uh, I believe today that's where data engineering sits. It's it's the hunting and the packing down of this information and figuring out how to collect, store, transform all that uh, that data and creating the pipelines in between to make sure that it's secure and it's stable and it's fast and the data is trustworthy. And essentially provisioning it out to folks in the BI and the analytics team, I'd even throw the AI groups, and then that's another facet of uh, of analytics today, to make sure that they can kind of grab that data baton and do what they need to do
4: with it without having to worry about all that data collection and so-called data wrangling.
0: Great. Eric, have you got something to add there?
4: Yeah, I think you know, data engineering, you see a lot of data scientists now that are shifting over to become data engineers because they we're brought in as data scientists, but we're doing data engineering as a proxy. But you're exactly right, Ben, in the sense that uh, data engineering is that like lower part of the iceberg. There's always that image of here's all of data. And the tip of the iceberg is BI analytics, data science, all of these AI use cases. But the bottom component, that 80-90% is data engineering. And so it's definitely a vital role and is the key underpinning to the success of BI analytics, AI, and realistically the business as it relates to the use of data. Um, and I don't really think that the departments are segmented necessarily. I just think that it's uh, you know the key role for any organization. When I'm meeting with people or talking about, hey, here's the first role that you should have at your organization. From a data perspective, it should be an engineer because they're going to build out the overall framework or that end-to-end from a pipeline perspective that then the business bi analytics ai etc can develop and use
0: great thanks for that eric um so chris have you have you got something to to add on there
2: yeah i'll just i'll, I'll add on to that um you know i think the bi team is definitely the um, downstream consumer of the data that the engineers are working with so you know, for us, it's it's so important for us to have that uh, relationship with the uh, engineering team and the technology team to make sure that, you know, everything's the way it needs to be for us and we can consume it and also to understand the projects that that we're working on. Um, so we have regular meetings with our engineering team to uh, to make sure we're all on the same page.
0: Great. Thanks for that. Chad?
2: Yeah, I know.
3: It's, um, it's an interesting uh, uh, point there too, Eric, on, you know, first person to get in there, first person to hire, if you're starting something from scratch, I totally agree on the data engineering being the critical role. The challenge, I think, at least what we see is when you have the data engineering and the analytics separated, it's the analytics team that's mostly getting the business requirements, right? And then if the data engineer is not tied to that or not really um, listening in on those conversations, you know, a lot of that work has to get redone or you know might not be done in the proper manner. And so as much as possible, we love it when the data engineers are like fully involved in the you know end-to-end project so that they can hear straight from the business what they're looking for, make sure things are done properly and, and then you can really start to move fast.
0: Yeah. That's great. Thanks, Chad. Um, so gonna move on to to Ben's second second point. So scaling and performance architectures. Do you wanna do you wanna kinda launch into that, Ben?
2: Sure.
1: Um, I think part of our our secret sauce is uh, taking on the role of figuring out the information management. Um, And by that, I mean, how is the information basically going to sit on disk, whether that's on-prem or in the cloud? Um, Sometimes I'll I'll draw a corollary between uh, data engineering and and library science. It isn't so much about uh, the software processes of of moving things from point A to point B, but uh, really understanding the best ways to um, gather all this stuff but still maintain it in a way that's going to serve up to its audience um, whether it's they're they're looking to to get data as fast as possible if they're looking to um, you know archive this stuff for long-term storage um, are they looking at things in aggregate or are they looking at things from like an operational uh, use case where they're looking for like one record at a time uh, kind of thing um it ties back to what I said a moment ago about where a lot of this data wrangling used to fall, uh, and the analytics teams having that stuff pre-fashioned today um, allows those analytics groups to kind of get at the data the way they want it better without having to worry about the underpinnings of how all of this stuff is set up. Um, a lot of our days are spent thinking about things in the realm of relational models. Are we going to go down traditional data warehousing methods like looking at star and snowflake schemas? Are we looking at column stores? Um, and all of that ties back to basically, you know, how people are going to use this information for like a logical use of lookups, whether it's a human being doing it or a piece of software that's going to tap in and, and grab the data off of an API or something like that. Um, the big, I'd say, like that, the 800-pound gorilla in the room is is always change. Um, and another thing that we try to be mindful of is architecting for that appropriately. So if you're you're doing it right, you know, and your business is growing, your data is probably going to be growing as well and making sure that you're designing systems that can expand um, at the same rate if not faster than than your businesses so that you're always a step ahead of where your data consumers are going to need you to be um and that's tricky and again by being able to focus on that that allows those other groups to kind of zero in on what they need to do and uh leave all that hard stuff up to us
0: great has anyone got anything to add to that no Okay, um, so thanks for that, Ben. I believe your your last point you wanted to touch on data governance, uh, trust, and security. Yeah. Do you mind running through that with us?
1: Sure. Um, so, data governance. Uh, I mean, it's a it's a huge topic, um, but I think for right now we could slice it into essentially two pieces. Um, one is you know, systems governance, and the other half is all the policies and legislature that uh, we we apply to our data, like the meaning of it um systems governance is basically the the practices that we would apply around the security and the soundness of data um making sure that we're uh looking at things that like encryption at rest and, and, and in motion um making sure that the, you know, the, the the databases are patched and uh the software that people are using to access the data um is up to snuff and it's you know that SOC two compliance and all this other this fun stuff things that aren't necessarily uh, super attractive to the to the bi teams, but they're necessary in order to um, instill the state of trust uh, on the data. The other side of this is creating the policies around what the data means. Um, and sometimes this is a much harder thing to figure out. Um, an example of that is a discussion around what what a data entity is, um, where it's born, where it's coming from, where it's going, um, you can pick on customer data, for example, um, like when I say customer, that might have a different meaning to to other folks. Uh, so narrowing down um, what these things mean inside your business, what pieces of software are responsible for um, authorizing and originating that data of what pieces of software are allowed to kind of look at that information, who in those pieces of software can look at that information, um, who can add to it and, and, and that sort of thing um, is another bit. I think In the past, again, when we had these one team or these one team setups that were responsible for doing it all, data governance often fell with with inside the IT organization. I think today, because everybody is using data, it's more of a full body discussion where if you're a provider, if you're a manipulator, and if you're a a stakeholder, um, everybody needs to be part of that conversation and weighing in, um, especially on that second half, like what the data means and how it's gonna be used appropriately.
0: Great, thanks for that, Ben. That was that was really interesting. Chad, have you have you got something to add there?
3: Yeah, I'm just curious, Ben. Like, have you have you had an easy time getting people to and buy into the importance of that and kind of support the governance um, initiatives? Uh, it's a great question.
1: Um, the short answer is no, um, and this is throughout my entire career, not just where I am today. I think for those that are really close, um, especially to the data stakeholdership end of things, they're hyper concerned about data governance because they'll come across an issue where something looks weird, or the, you know the data is dirty, so to speak. Uh, and why are we doing something about it? Um, typically, that's where we'll see the most action on a on a cleanup or an adjustment kind of effort. But that, that longer term thinking about how do we address this stuff before the data is let loose on the stakeholders, um, that is a conversation that really um, I think has a hard time getting off the ground. Um, the places I've seen it executed most successfully is where you've got top-down leadership kind of addressing this, this sort of thing. Even newer companies like the Spotify's and the Netflixes of the world, they've presented brilliantly at like reInvent about how they've approached data governance. And the common thread is that there's somebody sitting in a C-suite or something that's, that's making this part of the internal DNA. Um, And I think that's, that's actually a pertinent piece of defining yourself as a data-driven company is uh, the importance around data governance and really taking its meaning seriously for other people to use it.
3: Yeah, I do. I mean, that makes sense. That's kind of my experience as well. It's right. Either top down or it's something, the problems have become so severe that people are forced into taking it seriously, right? Yeah. So it's a little tough to do it without those, one of those two things in my experience, but
1: data stewardship, um, which I guess if you were to kind of draw like the triangle of roles, you know, that would fall probably somewhere in the middle. Um, I've seen that there is an underappreciation of how much work that can take sometimes. Um, I think we'd like to think that there's a tool out there that could just do it for this. And there certainly are tools that can help Um, but there really is a lot of human interaction and consistent engagement to make sure that the information you're working with is is trustworthy. Trust, by the way, it's a word that I prefer uh, more than clean. Um, I think data is data. It's neither good or bad, uh, but it really boils down to um, whether or not somebody that's going to use
4: something can actually rely on it in whatever state it's in.
0: Great. Thanks for that, Ben. Um, Um, Eric, did you have have something to add there?
4: Yeah, I think the other component too, that, you know, with Data governance as a whole is it depends on the environment or the the industry that you're working in. So obviously, if you're dealing with PHI or PII, whether you're in healthcare, or finance, um, it doesn't matter what size of a company you are. You're going to have to have some base level of data governance to ensure that there's no data leakage and that you're not negatively impacting consumers from a regulatory perspective. Um, but I think the other thing, too, with data governance is, and I think, Chad, you were alluding to this a little bit, is... As you're growing and when you're in the startup stages of a company i think data governance is often overlooked because it's like let's just build 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 we're not going to worry about stewardship at the moment we just need to get and ship things and i think as you grow as a company and as you mature you become a larger organization now you need to start paying more attention to it notwithstanding obviously Patch fixes or updates or the other regulatory compliance things that are the base level But just true data governance actual sdlc processes that people follow and a good run book for people to follow Um, I I think to your point ben there is a lot of effort in that And I think people don't realize it until it's too late or until they've grown to a certain point
0: great. Thanks, eric well we're gonna we're gonna wrap up uh, Ben's topics there, but they were they were great. So thank you so much for providing them, Ben. Um, and we're gonna move on to Chris's topics. So Chris, I believe you wanted to start with design and solutions with the end user in mind. So kick us off.
2: Yeah, yeah, thanks. So yeah, so I think you know I think back many years ago I had an opportunity to um, to learn you know some design thinking methodologies and and some takeaways I had from that and really stuck with me were you know Designing with the end user in mind and so really thinking about empathy and looking at things through their eyes, you know, so I always tell my team like, you know, anybody can sort of design a dashboard or, you know, create a chart or something like that. Right. But if you're not really answering questions that the business has with that dashboard, then it's, you know, to be blunt, it's just a waste of time, you know, in my opinion. So really understanding, you know, what those end users are looking for and um when you are designing solutions for them, you know, looking at it through that lens and just making sure that you you are answering questions that they have. Otherwise, you know, it's not really adding value um, to the business.
0: Yeah. Great. All right. Thanks, Chris. Um, Chad, did you have something to add there?
3: Yeah, Chris, I'm just curious, like, how, how do you get there, right? In that design process? Is it, you know, um, meeting with the end users? Is it, you know, trying to create prototypes beforehand? You know, what do you find to be the
2: best practices there? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's it's all of that, right? I mean, it's definitely meeting with the end users. Um, you know, we sit down with them, we talk with them, we have open-ended questions that we run through with them to make sure that um, you know we're completely understanding the um, the problem or the issue that that we're designing for. You know, and some of those questions are designed; they are open-ended, so they're designed to you know let the end user talk. And once they start talking, you know, um, a lot of times we'll figure out that what they initially had in mind wasn't really what they needed, you know? Um, so I think it's a lot of really understanding and talking with, with your end user.
0: Great. Thanks, Chris. Ben, did you, do you want to add something?
1: Yeah, I, I agree with uh, everything that was just said. Um, having those conversations around what is it you're trying to do are, are really important um, and getting, uh, I would say, some crispness around the why rather than just putting information out there for information's sake. Uh A lot of things that the effort around that can be understated. Um, But wow, what a difference um, when you're actually building towards uh, an actual directive that's been clearly defined and is delivering value.
0: Yeah, great. Thanks. And uh, Eric, I I see your your hand up there.
4: (laughs) Yeah. um, So, you know, I think to build on your point, Chris, something that I'll always tell people is I'd rather build you a dull Excel report that's used every day than a sexy machine learning model that sits on a shelf. And so, it it's about usability, it's about understandableness of your product, um, but it it really is about meeting with those stakeholders early and often because usually what they need is not what they want, and it is through those conversations that you discover that. Um, I've found success in doing like wireframing or prototyping, which I think Chad you're alluding to, um, mm-hmm. uh, of just being able to understand from just a quick sketch of, hey, what are we trying to accomplish here? Sometimes I'll ask the question of, if you, like, let's forget about things we built in the past. Imagine you have unlimited resources, whatever the newest tech is, like, what problems are you trying to solve for? And how can we get there? Because sometimes there are these horse blinders on of these products or solutions that have been developed in the past of, hey, we need to do it this way in this new system because that's how we've done it in the past or that's what we've done before and that's what I'm used to. And so being able to, open and expand their mind into what the possibilities are and track towards the problems that they're solving for i think just allows for a more organic conversation to develop but actual products to be developed through that prototyping phase that then when you build out whatever that solution is it's not a surprise to them there's that buy-in and it's not just throwaway work that was developed for an
2: ad hoc spree
0: great Eric.
2: some great points there eric and uh you know going back to the excel chart example i mean i think Everybody agrees that most of the business world is run on Excel these days anyway, so, right.
0: I think everyone agrees with you. I can see lots of nodding
2: heads. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I'll take it one step further and say, you know, like nowadays we have a lot of the tools where we can utilize some of that metadata and see, you know, what reports or dashboards are actually being used out there. So if, you know, we've designed these, these reports for our customers and they're not looking at them or using them, then there's a disconnect somewhere perhaps, right? And so that gives us another opportunity to sort of get back in front of them and say, hey, you know, what's going on here? Maybe their needs have changed, you know, over time, which happens all the time. Um, but it's a good opportunity to kind of get back with them and, and make sure that, you know, we're providing what they need.
0: Great. Thanks, Chris. Well, we're going to move on to your your next topic. So liv- leveraging intake forms or processes to handle the increase in requests from the business.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that, that sort of goes back to, you know, it's sort of inevitable that we do ad hoc requests um, for the business, you know, they don't have the expertise to pull data sets and and things that they need. So they come to our team, but, um, you know, it's sort of moving from being that ticket taker to being more proactive um, for the business, you know, looking at objectives and goals for the year, you know, what are we working on? Um, Does that ad hoc request make sense for us to work on now, you know, and so coming up with processes to sort of, uh, and that is, has been critical for us. You know, so we have uh, an intake form. It's got questions on there that the business has to answer. You know, they might need uh, senior leadership approval on it. Um, so we have some sort of roadblocks for them um, just to kind of, you know, triage some of these requests coming in and making sure that um, that they're, uh, you know, uh, addressing some of the goals and objectives of the of the business.
0: Great. Eric, did you have something to add there?
2: Yeah, I think having that,
4: more refined process that's introduced for the team accomplishes several things so the first being it protects the team so you don't have rogue stakeholders who are just contacting the team persistently to get things done and to you know move the needle on several initiatives Um, I think it reduces the amount of duplicate efforts or duplicate requests that come in because if three people from the same team are making the same request to three different people on the data team well now you have three people working asynchronously on the same problem Um, but Then I also think that uh, it, it has the potential to truly show the value or the work that you're doing because I think sometimes the ad hoc requests might get slipped under the rug or they might iterate and turn into a great product but no one really knows the origination point or no one really knows how those ideas were developed as well and so having some sort of intake form to be able to document that and to be able to uh, understand that process accomplishes you know understanding what the request was the product that was developed into but then just protects the team on several accounts
3: yeah great chad yeah no i I mean i i definitely think it's uh common if you're doing a good job with analytics you're going to get a ton of extra requests and ad hoc requests and inevitably that's you know part of the challenge but also a good good challenge to have in this space um i think as much as possible you kind of you have to try to give them the end users uh, a bit of a playground you know that's what we try to do at least a a place where they can get access to the data in a usable manner raw data and you know oftentimes what we see is if they can do that they can kind of build their own model typically in excel right and they can kind of come up with their own analysis and then if they want to you know, operationalize that or put it into a dashboard and get it automated, then then you you have a blueprint from them after they've gotten to work with the raw data themselves. So um, I definitely think there are some things too that can you can do to, to give them access to that so that they, they uh, do a little bit of the work themselves and kind of iron out the, the concepts that they're playing with.
0: Yeah, great. Thanks for that, Chad. All right. Well, we're going to move on to um, your final topic, Chris. So potentially quite, quite a broad one, probably something that you could talk about for a while, but talk us through the role of the BI team.
2: Yeah, it, it's definitely broad and um, we, could, we could probably spend a lot, a lot of time on it. Um, but, you know, what I was getting at is sort of, you know, what is the role of the BI team today compared to, you know, years ago? I mean, it's certainly evolved, right? And you have to kind of think about, um, you know, the terms that are being used, you know, business intelligence, data analytics, data science, you know, they're a lot of them are sort of being used interchangeably but but what really you know does that mean and so you know for us at fm global our team is involved in yeah you know, long form in-depth analysis reporting and and dashboards and then efficiency for the business so it's not always just creating a report or a dashboard but you know for example we had a team that came to us uh, last year and, and they needed our help and they said we sat down with them and they were literally You know daily on a daily basis copying text out of emails and putting them into an excel sheet Um, these were automated emails that were getting spit out from some sort of database or something and um you know so after sitting with them for for a few minutes it became apparent that yeah we could definitely help you um and it turns out that yeah we could connect to the database on the back end you know push that into uh, rbi to visualize it for them and automate that whole process so where they were spending you know i would say a good, you know, full week of time, um, talking 40 hours, probably just copying, pasting text, you know, we were able to cut that down to, you know, maybe 10 minutes a week or or whatever the case is. But, but so, so those are some of the things that, that we do for the business as well. And it's not just, you know, analysis and reporting. So it's, it's sort of expanded over time.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Has anyone got anything to add to that? I think you've
1: described a, a, Kind of a great example it was Reed Hastings who said, like enhancing your capabilities through technology, not not headcount. Um, but yeah, I think we've all seen cases where you've got a person or a group of people that are going through uh, fiery hoops to get a job done, which I guess is better than just throwing your hands up and saying, this is too hard. Uh, I'm not going to do it. Um, i think kind of dovetailing on your last topic though there there's a point in here also about ruthless prioritization and being able to focus on um on what matters most um and certainly these teams can can help articulate that i guess there was i don't know if you want to edit this out there was something you said a moment ago that if you could repeat there because i lost a sentence talking about this other piece
2: yeah what what was that that you were thinking um, about
1: it was right before you were talking about the people going in there and copying the um, bits of
2: email into the spreadsheet. Yeah, I was talking to, Well, I was just talking about uh, you know our team at FM and the multiple roles that that we do um, between you know in-depth analysis, reporting, and dashboards, and then efficiencies. Uh, All right, perfect. I'm. Sorry. I'll, uh, yeah. I'll I'll, I'll spin it out. Yeah. I'll
0: if you think of it later, Ben, just yeah. uh, just unmute and we can we can work it in. But I can edit this out. Yeah. Don't worry.
1: <laughs> you post processing. That's it. great.
0: Yeah, I'll send it to marketing. They can do it.
1: <laughs> exactly. Cool.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, um, that's that's perfect. Thank you so much for your for your topics, Chris. That was really interesting. Um, we're going to move on to Chad's topic. So, Chad, I think you actually wanted to circle back to um to one of Chris's points about having the the end user in mind. So do you want to expand on that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's um just in general, you know, what leads to good adoption of analytics, you know, and what does it take? And that's something that I think about quite a bit, you know, and try to fine tune over the course of my career. I think there's some things that are out of control, you know, out of your own control, like, you know, sponsorship from the top level. Ideally, it's there. If it's not, it's pretty tough to get, you know, adoptions of analytics within the organization. Um, but, you know, there are beyond kind of the basics, right, which are making sure the data is accurate, making sure the solution is fast and performant. Um, you know, I think we've talked a little bit about, you know, the end user, making sure that they're, you're kind of iterating and getting things in front of them quickly so that they can get feedback and they can you can fine tune what they're looking at and what they're wanting. Um, and that kind of goes to, Uh, A concept we talk about a lot, which is like jobs to be done, um, which is really, you know, looking at the business user or the end, the consumer of the analytics, you know, what are they trying to do with the data? You know, what are they coming in and logging into a dashboard for uh, and trying to enable, you know, that job that they're trying to do as much as possible. So that could mean things like, you know, um, being able to simply email out a dashboard directly from the platform to their to their team because they see something that's off. Or being able to, uh, you know, have some sort of narrative or some sort of conversation directly within the platform. Um, and we also kind of think about, you know, the, the types of KPIs and the metrics that are uh, being presented, and you know, there are some criteria that we think about with regards to those, which are um, things like making sure it's a, a controllable metric, something that the people who are looking at, uh, you know, have control over its behavior in terms of um, you know, if it's a sales metric, you know, they, they'll they obviously be able to move that needle up or down. But um, if it's a metric that they don't have any control of, it's not going to be really relevant to them and they're not going to use it. Um, making sure they're current and they're, you know, uh, they're it's up to date and accurate. Um, but also something, in, you know, that's a little more nuanced is whether or not it's, uh, you know, metrics that, that's easily trackable, something that they can understand. You know, I've seen a lot of a lot of implementations where people try to put in some sophisticated metric or algorithm that, you know, rolls up a bunch of other different metrics and no one understands what it means. And, you know, inevitably that's not going to get used. Um, So I think one of the challenges generally is just that there are so many moving parts, so many areas and possibilities of failure that you kind of have to nail a lot of these different things in order to get people to really adopt it. Um, And, you know, that's, that's why we spend a lot of time thinking about and try to pay attention to it.
0: Some great points, thanks, Chad. Um, and then we're going to move on to your next one. So again, kind of kind of touching on what Chris mentioned, but you know where BI and analytics can help organize organizations, but also where it might not, which is an interesting take. Can you run us through that?
3: Yeah, sure. Uh, again, just for I mean for the audience and for people listening, I think it's important to note when you're going into a project, um, there are some clear areas, right? That that these can these these Uh, dashboards and these solutions can help. Um, We've talked a little bit about it. But you know, I think some of the basic ones are kind of what Chris was talking about, you know, in terms of automation, you know, there should be these should be helping to automate people's work in terms of composing reports. So if they're working in Excel and living in Excel doesn't mean they have to necessarily do all the data preparation, management, manipulation within Excel itself. Um, And then it also, you know, should be uh, aligning the organization. And so You know as a single source of truth you can you know remove a lot of the arguments and the back and forth internally around what the right number is and that can obviously help the organization at a high level but particularly like where we have found where it's a little bit you know less helpful you know is either in really small scale data sets you know where maybe companies organizations have a very low volume of you know uh sales or really highly customized products um or highly variable, you know, complex data sets. You know, one in particular is around, you know, complex commission structures. You know, we've seen that come up quite a bit where, you know, when you want to automate how much someone is getting paid based on a number of rules. And if there are so many rules, it's almost, it's, it's very difficult to put that all to, in with a traditional BI tool versus something that's purpose-built for that. Uh, so you can get carried away pretty quickly with those types of things. Um, and there are a couple others as well, you know, I would say, but I'm, I'm curious of other folks on on the call here, have thoughts on that?
1: On that last point, um, with complex roles and management and how hairy it can be to uh, to sort things out. One approach that we have taken over the years is, is to adopt um, team federation. So, uh, at, at one point in time, there was just kind of a a single group that was in charge of it all. So they had to. Like I was saying before, I pull all the stuff together and figure it out, and then and, and serve it up. But there was an intense amount of knowledge that was required in that that central group around business rules. Um, so you know, there's there's the the technical implementation of that stuff, which can be tricky enough. But then there's the actual just you know thinking about like how does this person get paid and what group and why and you know the the other salespeople can't see any of that and and, and that sort of thing. So um, by kind of Breaking up the the centrality of of, um, of our group and creating these federated uh, teams to take on some of that work, um, we were able not only just to distribute the workload, but distribute the knowledge. And we wound up, you know, developing these teams that really had a, a deeper sensitivity into what the heck needed to happen. Um, they just they had a lot of that kind of sentient knowledge about the data that was specific to their world, um, and were able to take it much further than than we were ever able to. Um, so today, I mean, I guess, curse and a blessing, there's always a price for this stuff, but we live in a group of uh, a couple uh, federated data teams, both engineering and analytics. Um, so they're able to kind of live out there on the edge, um, you know, they're, they're consuming stuff that we, you know, closer to the IT organization are serving up, but then they get their special piece of the pie based on a single source of truth. Uh, but then they're kind of putting their own veneer and polish on it that's specific to them and delivering something um, that's much more palatable with the advantage with these multiple groups of getting a lot more asynchronous work done as well. So they're not just bottlenecked by, you know, what me and my, my, my group of merry people can do <laughs> for them.
3: Yeah. I think that, that makes a lot of sense, Ben. I think you definitely need to have that in those areas where there, there's so much domain expert or, you know, knowledge and and uh, expertise required and, um, interesting to hear how you approach that there
1: yeah um we uh well a couple of us have um adopted this notion around domain driven design and how that feathers into this thing called data mesh which is becoming all the rage um you know this might out of go for today's discussion but that's some it's a pretty powerful framework that uh, i i can't advocate enough for it it's, it's, it's wonderful great
0: thanks ben eric chris have you have you got anything to add to that before we move on no
2: Okay. Not Um, not to that one particularly, but um, going back to a couple of um, Chad's points, you know, talking about um, KPIs and metrics, um, you know, and really understanding, you know, what those KPIs and metrics mean um, to the business, right? So if you have a KPI on a dashboard that's, you know, you had $25 million in sales this year, well, is that good or bad, right? So you want to be able to sort of convey that, I think, to your end user or to the audience and provide some context around that. You know, I think for a company like Coca-Cola, obviously that would be a pretty bad year for sales, but for a smaller company, I mean, that that could be, you know, the year of their lifetime. So being able to provide that context on that reporter dashboard, I think is is really key and important for them to uh, to take action on it or to understand it.
0: Yeah, great point. Thanks, Chris. Um, okay, so we're going to move on to Chad's final point, which is how BI analytics is impacted by later progress in AI, which I know is a super hot topic at the moment. So uh, yeah, launch into that.
3: Yeah, I, I think this could be its own, own conversation. Um, but it's something we're also spending a lot of time thinking about playing around with trying to figure out where, where it can really drive value and help. Um, you know, in some areas, it's pretty easy. It's, you know, uh, things like, you know, building new integrations, you know, helping actually develop some of the code or, uh, you know, develop data models um, in other areas, you know, data cleansing can help, you know, can be automated a little bit more um, and simple things like outlier identification and, and you know, simple uh, kind of questions of the data can be answered uh, a little bit more easily. Um, but really, I think, you know, in terms of like long term, where we're going, it's, uh, question, open question to me as to what this looks like. I think, um, you know, a couple thoughts, so, you know, if you have a, if you have a good analytics solution and you have a CEO or a leader logging in, you know, they're typically coming in, they're trying to see, you know, do I have good results? And if so, you know, uh, where are they and how can I, you know, implement those results in other parts of the business? Or maybe there's a certain sales, fo- sales team that's doing really well. How do I take what they're doing and put it over there? In another area, um, if there are bad trends, you know, it's like how do I fix that? How do I tell my team to go fix that? How do I address that? Um, and so, if I look out there, I think it's you know the act of aggregating all the data, developing these solutions can help can be kind of done faster, hopefully, with these tools. But also, to the extent possible, you know these the, these actions that users are taking as they come into the dashboards, as they come into the solutions can also be, you know, augmented by these, by, by this technology. You know, so uh, something as simple as coming in and trying to understand where those problems are, that should be pretty well automated. You know, it should be easier to type, to bubble those things up to the top. You know, same thing with things that are going well. Um, but take, then taking that next step, taking those actions, you know, in my mind, I'm trying to figure out where, where can, you know, this technology help even take it further so you're living not just within the dashboard, but you're you know in, you're enabling this data within the organization uh, in even more ways, more actionable ways.
0: Great, thanks. I can see everyone nodding along. Eric, have you got something to add to that?
4: Yeah, I think you know part of the question is like how is BI and analytics impacted? I'm sure there's two sides of the coin. Like, what's the positive outcome, and what's the potential negative ramifications of this technology? Um, and I think if we go back to what Chris was talking about, the role of BI and analytics and even larger data at an organization, if it's just treated as a reporting shop or an order taker, and there isn't that next level thinking, then I can see the role of generative AI or just AI in general, replacing a lot of those roles or at least a lot of that functionality so that you need a smaller team. And so you saw the same thing with RPA and data entry roles, or even like, you know, people always point to like, Farmers and the tractor, or you know, some of those early earlier technologies that uh, mass amounts of people were replaced by these systems or functions, and instead had to shift to other roles. And so, mm-hmm. I, I think we'll see the same thing with AI and its adoption from a BI analytics data perspective is for people that it can enable and allow you to free up those rote monotonous tasks so that you can do that next level thinking, well, now that has just made you 10x more valuable. If you just focused on the rote monotonous tasks and you just were an order taker who hey somebody reached out and said i need the top 10 diagnoses by utilization and cost you churn that out for them and then they didn't speak to you and you didn't give them any sort of strategic outlook then i can see tools replacing that with a simple prompt that then hits your back end and pulls and extracts that information for you so um I think it just depends on your role and the team's role in terms of how it impacts you. But I think the net of it is going to free up a lot of people's time and make people more efficient, um, but it'll just shift some priorities or at least the way your role is constructed. Great.
0: Thanks, Eric. Some really interesting points there. Ben, did you have something to add there?
4: Yeah, just
1: an area that I'm always kind of poking at is how to um, apply evaluation on on data sets, which seems just ridiculously harder than it should be. Um, you know, I joke with my boss that if I went to our CFO and I asked how much is our furniture worth in all our offices, we could probably come back with a pretty good answer. But if I asked the same thing, like what's our data worth, it's not so straightforward. Um, so, and a lot of that ties into some of the stuff we we're talking about earlier with prioritization and what we focus on and what we don't. Um, so, I don't have an answer there either. But I mean, I guess I would open it to to the room here to see if any of you had gone down this path or if there are tips or tricks for especially for the listeners to to help with this, because I think this is something that can really promote the value of data and put some fire underneath data projects that a lot of us have been trying to do for a long time.
3: Yeah, I think there are definitely ways of going about it, but it is, it is very tricky and challenging, Ben. I mean, you know, if you're talking about a single metric, you know, and you're talking about the cost of like developing a solution to give business users the ability to get into that metric to see that it's like, you can maybe model something where if you see a 10% increase in that, what does that mean for the business, you know, from a financial standpoint, from a monetary standpoint, and maybe back out some sort of ROI there. But uh, man, that's a, that's a, that's a challenge. I don't have a, a, a clean answer to because it is
4: uh, oftentimes case by case.
0: Thanks, Chad. All right. Did you have something to add then?
4: Yeah, I think, you know, Ben, what you're poking at is I think the main issue or, contention point with a lot of people who are developing data practices within the organization is patience. We need to wait for these data products to obtain the ROI or to deliver on what the promise was from the get-go. It's very easy to assess or monitor the overall costs. You have storage costs, you have cloud computing costs, you have labor costs for all the people that are building these things out. But what is the actual ROI or tangible ROI that's hairy to get to. And sometimes you can create some fuzzy logic to, uh, maybe get there and say, Hey, uh, we're going to get, you know, hundred dollars per, uh, conversion based off of this model that we built out and we have a million people. So we're going to get, you know, 10, hundred million dollars, like whatever it is based off of your calculations. And I think, the harder part in that is sure, maybe you will get those conversions, but when is it going to happen? When is the product going to be finalized? When are we going to be able to achieve that? And so, um, for a smaller company that is something that's not always palatable and something that they'll just either kick the can on actual implementation or not hire enough resources to truly build something. So it's just this patchwork of, oh, we have a data engineer for six months. All right, now we're going to get a contract and hire a data analyst to work on the data engineer's work, but we don't want the data engineer there anymore because we're incurring a cost on her. So I think it's, you need to have that requisite investment on whatever that data product is. Usually you should probably start off with something smaller that you know is going to convert and get you that dollar amount. Um, and then once you prove that out, then I think leadership is more comfortable in investing the next, you know, five, 10, $15 million in whatever that initiative is. So the cost is very easy to understand. It's the ROI that's really difficult. I think that's
3: the key at the last point there, Eric is starting small, getting something out and seeing how the, the organization adopts it, utilizes it and giving them a sense of, uh, what the value is. And they'll know as soon as they have it in their hands and, Rather than go the old waterfall approach and spend a year building out a solution that never gets adopted, you know, the smaller you can start the better.
0: Great. All right. Thanks, guys. Well, I'm gonna um, wrap up Chad's Chad's topics there and we're gonna move on to Eric's. So um Eric, your first topic is BI analytics ownership within the organization. Give us a bit more a bit more depth to that.
4: Yeah, so Ben actually I think kicked us off a little bit here, uh talking about his federated model, but I want to actually, before I give my opinion on this, uh, since we heard from Ben, I want to hear from Chris and Chad on what their take is on BI analytics ownership as it relates to the enterprise as a whole.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a a great conversation to have. And, you know, I think it it depends. I've worked in organizations where there's no sort of centralized data team. And I'm at an organization now where there is a, a centralized data analytics department. You know, we have an advanced analytics team there. We have the BI team, which I'm a part of. We have the the data engineering team. Um, And so I think, you know, each one, I mean, I think having a centralized team, uh, sort of a hub and spoke model is ideal, but obviously not every company uh, can do that or get that off the ground. You know, so I think um, someone made the point earlier about having folks out across the organization that are, you know, data literate. And so I think that's sort of the ideal model where you have your centralized data team and then you have folks across the organization that are also data literate, uh, especially in this day and age. I mean, companies have so much data to, to deal with and it's it's coming at us so fast. Right. Um, and I don't think it really matters what sort of position you have at a company. You have to have some sort of data literacy at this point, whether that's, you know, learning how to use Excel more efficiently or whatever the case is. But um, regardless of the position, you know, data literacy is is really important. Great. Thanks, yeah. Chris.
3: And I would say, I mean, we, we typically work within the middle market, so, you know, slightly smaller organizations, they don't have necessarily huge teams on the data side. But, you know, in that space, what I've found is, um, you know, certainly going back to the uh, sponsorship at the top, if there's a there, ideally there is someone on the business side, CFO, COO, who is really uh, owning the implementation, owning the project, owning the implementation of, of the analytics solution within the business. That way they can really influence, again, this is, in my opinion, it's there to serve the business. It's not there to serve necessarily the technology team, right? Just alone. So they can really help influence the direction and, and uh, make sure it's providing the business value that it needs. And then secondly, like just having that one independent, one individual person maybe right underneath that CFO or COO, who's really the subject matter expert, subject matter expert, maybe not, Maybe an analyst, financial analyst, not necessarily a technical person, but someone who really understands the full landscape of where the data is coming from. They can answer the easy questions around where these data points might be. You know, single point of contact ownership within the organizations I work within. It's very difficult to have success, but if you do have that and that expert there, um, then uh, I, I've seen a lot more trust built, a lot more uh, success and adoption within the, the
4: broader business. Yeah, those are those are both excellent points and I appreciate you guys walking through that and I think so what I've seen is when you get a model that is very federated and you have all of these independent groups that are owning all the different data elements and you have no central team you create these data silos that exist and you get away from a single source of truth but there's these contention points that happen of Finance has a certain number, operations has another number, sales has another number, marketing has another number. And so all these different groups now come to the board meeting or to to uh, joint operating meeting and they have six different numbers of what membership is or six different numbers on what total revenue was. and when that happens, now nobody trusts the data. There's all this finger pointing and then data is just thrown away or thrown by the wayside because, Everybody's right, but everybody's wrong, and nobody's moving in the same direction. And conversely, when you have something that is too centralized, um, and I think Ben was touching on this earlier, you lose the meaning of each of those departments to an extent, and you aren't able to pay enough attention to each of those departments. And so if you have a certain department that is the uh, revenue-generating department or the uh, department that has the largest footprint... They get the most attention and then maybe you don't focus on marketing enough or you don't focus on sales enough because operations needs all the data elements and data becomes a de facto department or sub unit of a certain department because of that. And so I think what's really works about having that federated model is you have that central team that can take in any request, maintain the single source of truth and take in any best practice from one of those, um, like offshoots or different teams and then those other teams are obviously benefiting from whatever the centralized team is pumping out, but there isn't a contention point because they own whatever the data is for them, but it all still funnels through that central unit or the central group. Um, and so the stewardship or the ownership is really centralized, but each of those different groups has a level of authority or a different flavor that they can put on their data in order to make it more accessible and reusable, more, more understandable by each of their departments. And so... I think that that, from my perspective, is the best way for data analytics as well as BI and analytics to function in organizations. It's when you have that centralized unit and then uh, federation across other units that then feed into that that larger central team. Um, and I think Chris, you started to talk about data literacy, and I love that you brought that up because I, that fits so nicely into here. Because for me. Data literacy means not just understanding your data or understanding how to code or understanding dashboards, et cetera, but it's having that business context. It's having an understanding of the marketplace. It's knowing your role, knowing your department and how data both assists your role in department, but then plays a bigger part in an organization. And I think to truly achieve that, you need to have more of a federated model where you still have a strong centralized team that is the ultimate decision maker, but federated groups that still own components of their data.
2: Yeah, some uh, some great points there, Eric. And I can't tell you how many meetings I've been in in the past where um, two people are in that meeting thinking they're looking at the same metric and they're different. And uh, it's because they pulled them from different reports or whatever the case is. Um, those are not fun meetings to be, uh, to be a part of, that's for sure. And then you bring that to a
4: consumer or customer and then they're like, you guys don't know what you're doing. You have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. You don't know your own data or you both created logic that's different from what the actual truth is. So now the customer is like my win percentage based off of what you guys said or conversion rate is 20%. I don't know why you're presenting 47 and then marketing's presenting 62. What's going on? And so it, you go in trying to create Camaraderie, trust, whatever word you want to call it, and you leave with people feeling
2: dejected and like they've been lied to to their face. Yeah, yeah and that yeah, trust. And, so, okay. yeah, I was just going to say that trust and integrity of the data is, is so important. Um, you know, where we work with mostly internal customers on my team, but um, you know that could be anyone from the CEO down to you know an entry level analyst. But it's all the same. If they don't trust the data, then they're not really trusting the work that you're doing. So those are great points. Do you have
0: something to add that? Oh, sorry. Yeah.
2: Well, just, I mean, there, there's, there's bits of, um, a lot of bits of data
1: governance and data literacy involved in all of this stuff. Um, I I think there's both art and science involved in figuring out what needs to be single sourced of truth. So that problem of two people looking at kind of the same thing, but coming up with different results is, um, the, the definition of insanity. Um so this is an area where we would strive very hard to kind of pull in and actually centralize and put policy around saying this is the name of the customer, this is the math in order to calculate this particular metric. Um, anything outside of these bounds is not trustworthy and really publicize that stuff. Um, but in order to do that kind of thing and really empower those federated teams, you got to have the data literacy out there. I'm optimistic that this is something that continues to get better, I and mean, I'm old enough to remember when it's 1995, I worked in a place we had a Mac 2GS hooked up to the public internet, and there was maybe three people in this very small company that were even allowed to touch the machine, because what would happen if you touched one of the five websites you could get to? Oh, no. And so, I mean, it's it sounds ridiculous in today's uh, state, but I think at some point, using data in pretty sophisticated ways will become as... Um, ubiquitous if not fashionable as you know we use email or the internet today i'm I'm very hopeful in that regard
0: that's great thanks for that guys well we're going to move on to eric's next topic which is bridging communication between technology and business through bi and analytics
4: yeah so when people ask me what i do um the way i describe it is i connect the business to the data and vice versa and i do think that that is the best way to describe business intelligence analytics or just data as a whole is figuring out how to be that communication layer between the two and i often joke that i'm bilingual between the two because it does take a certain skill set of being able to break down business goals business outcomes or business objectives into technical components and builds but also be able to derive or understand the data in a way that can work towards your initiatives or the the business goals that you've set out so from my perspective um it Data serves as the conduit or that glue between uh, the two functions of business and technology Um, and really is about trying to be more informed as an organization with all the elements that you have uh, within a data warehouse or or that you can obtain um, to just make the best or most impactful decisions for the business.
0: That's great. Thanks, Eric. Chad, have you got something to add there?
4: You know,
3: just to reiterate, I mean, that's it's a unique and rare skill set, Eric, I think, to be able to do that, right, uh, effectively. And I think um, it's definitely important. Uh, I would uh, say that, you know, um, you can either have folks who are just going to take the orders and try to, you know, interpret and do the best they can, but to really, you know, add value to what the business is asking for and really create a solution that they're going to utilize and, and uh, an effective t- technical solution for them. That's a definitely a challenge and um definitely very valuable
0: great thanks chad that's been really great thanks guys we're gonna leave it there um this has been the evolution exchange podcast i want to take this opportunity to thank ben chris chad and eric for providing their insights into the topic and thank you guys for listening